Hello and welcome back to Chiron, conversations about the past to help us make sense of the present. My name is Div, and today we're continuing our look into an ancient idea that has shaped our world, the world that we live in right now, the old lie of the satanic impulse. This is part two of Thou Shalt Be Gods. Now before I start, I should say that I completely recognise that the previous episode was entirely introductory. And by that, what I guess I mean is that I didn't really hit any hard particular points. What we did was I introduced the show and its aims, spent a bit of time reading some Nietzsche, but I didn't really comment that much on him or on the meaning behind what he was communicating in that incredible parable of the madman. So if you want more Nietzsche, trust me, you're going to get it. I can't do a series on humanity's desire to be gods without spending a bunch of time with our German buddy. But that will be for another time. As I promised at the end of the last episode, this one, and probably a few others I'd say, are going to be dedicated to spending some time talking about the owner or the, uh, the, the progenitor of the satanic impulse, Satan himself. You'll remember that the satanic impulse is what I'm calling the human desire to be God. And today we're going to start to look at some of the reasons why that is what I have decided to call this impulse. Now, like anyone that really ever does anything, I'm building on the work of those that have come before me in a really big way. So if you see anything revelatory or insightful at all in these conversations, it's because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. One of those giants is C.S. Lewis, and I'm severely indebted to his work for revealing with such clarity the pernicious ubiquity of what he calls the old lie. I've taken this term from That Hideous Strength, which is one of his books, the third book in his Ransom Trilogy, uh, which is also called The Space Trilogy. It's probably my second favourite C.S. Lewis book of all time, and we'll spend a bunch of time talking about scientism and transhumanism when we delve into that book, along with other works of C.S. Lewis, particularly The Abolition of Man. But for now, though, my co-opting of the term The Old Lie is taken from That Hideous Strength during an inner monologue of the mysterious director of St. Anne's. I'm working really hard to avoid any spoilers here. As he, the director, considers the dastardly plans of the National Institute of Coordinated Experiments. The old lie is the desire to be God. And it is, of course, the oldest lie. Why do we say it's the oldest lie? Well, we're all familiar with the story of the Garden of Eden. Although, Potentially, some people may not be in today's Western world, as Christianity has slowly become displaced as a foundation of meaning and understanding. There may be those who are, yes, they're aware of it, they've heard about it, but they're only kind of tangentially aware of the story of the garden. So in summary, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 tell of God creating the heavens and the earth and making Adam and Eve. And then in chapter 3, we see the entrance of the serpent who slides into Eve's DMs and asks an interesting question. Here's what it says, and because I like it old school, I'm reading from the King James Version. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree in the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. 
And the serpent said to the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now there are a bunch of things to talk about here, and a lot of really interesting angles that we could potentially journey down, and each of them could possibly become a podcast episode of their own. I just want to divulge just into one tangent for a moment, and that is to recognize the approach of the serpent. You know, when you think about it, he didn't come in all guns blazing. He's not getting in Eve's face and telling her what to do. He's obviously not aggressive or even scary. You know, he's not, he's not terrifying. Rather, he does something far craftier. He asks a question. My point here is to recognize the incredible power of questions over and above just statements. Socrates in ancient Greece was known as a gadfly, a questioner who would literally go around asking people questions like, what do you mean by that? And eventually people would walk away questioning everything that they thought they knew because he had helped them to realize that they didn't really understand what they thought they understood. They didn't really know that much at all. They were walking around with a whole bunch of assumptions, but these assumptions had never really been cashed out properly, worked out fully in their minds. And when a person came along and started asking these questions, it revealed to them their ignorance. Socrates's point was that this is exactly what is needed for a person to be positioned, ready to learn. Self-knowledge is key, and you must know that you don't know very much in order to be ready to know more. This question, by the way, what do you mean by that, is kind of like asking someone to define their terms. It is a brilliant and disarming question, because the fact is that we often go through our days not really knowing at all what we mean by that. So being asked to define our terms, to explain exactly what we mean, can quickly demonstrate that we're operating on some very vague assumptions, rather than some solid and well thought through beliefs. It's the first question in what Greg Kokel calls the Columbo tactic, and if you're interested in it, it is totally worth looking into if you just search for that. But, back to questioning. Asking questions is not always positive in this Socratic sense. Asking questions can also be a deceitful activity due to the nature of the questions and the assumptions underlying them. C.S. Lewis demonstrates the power of this tactic in book two of the Ransom Trilogy, called Perilandra, in an incredible scene reenacting the fall in the garden, in which there's kind of like a Satan-type archetype who attempts to deceive and tempt uh, an Eve archetype into disobeying the laws of the king of their world. And again, no spoilers, but I absolutely recommend that you check that one out. And yeah, I suppose I should probably say at this point in time that this podcast is going to be full of book recommendations all the time, but um, you've been warned. They're good books. They're worth, they're worth reading. So, returning to Genesis. Now, if this story of the Garden of Eden is not new to you, chances are you're really quite familiar with it. You know, really familiar with it. You might have grown up hearing it all the time. And familiarity can lead to a level of flippancy. It can be really easy to ignore the details of a story that you may have heard hundreds of times before your 10th birthday. Because for many, in fact, really for everyone, I would assume when they think about this story, 
This is seen as the first emergence of the character of Satan. The serpent is Satan. But you'll note that the text itself doesn't say that. It's much later in the Bible, in fact not really until the New Testament, that this connection is made. And hopefully this might cause you to pause for a second and ask yourself, what do you really know about this character, this figure of Satan? The Bible is actually pretty light on with the details, at least with unambiguous references clearly explaining who he is and his backstory. Much of what passes as firm knowledge about the nature of Satan is often assumed to be biblical in foundation. You would likely know the story that Satan was once uh, an angel called Lucifer, and he was sometimes considered uh, to be in charge of the music, or maybe he was like the second in command, or sometimes both. And at some point in time before the creation of the world, he rebelled and convinced one third of the angels to join him in this rebellion, and there was a huge war in heaven or maybe there wasn't much of a war because God was so good and just won so quickly. Because of his rebellion, he and his, uh, all of his followers, this third of the other angels, were thrown into hell. And then Lucifer became Satan. And then he became a serpent and snuck into the Garden of Eden and tempted Eve to eat the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But in actual fact, very little of this can be truly considered biblical if what we mean by that word biblical is that we can find literal, clear, unambiguous foundations of it in the scriptures. Probably one of the clearest examples is all the way at the other end of the Bible. We started in Genesis, we've got to go all the way to Revelation, Revelation 12, 7 to 9. And it says this, And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So there you go. This is an example. This is uh, one of the most kind of referenced moments in the Bible that tries to articulate this connection between the devil and the serpent, the serpent in the Garden of Eden, as well as the devil and this angel, because there's this war in heaven and they get kicked out, right? But of course, we've got to remember that this is the book of Revelation, and the metaphorical symbolic meaning of this book has been and continues to be debated for centuries and will continue to be. It's a dream with whole layers and levels of metaphorical meaning. So to say that this definitely, unambiguously, and absolutely uh, is a correlation is maybe a little bit of a stretch just to hold it that firmly. Another more abstract reference is from Jude 1, there's only one book in Jude, verse 6, which says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. So you can see there's a little bit in there about angels who kind of left their first estate, their first place, and uh, then he hath, and he being God, he's reserved them in everlasting chains uh, in darkness until the judgment of the great day. So there's really not very much, is what I'm saying. Another thing to think about is this question of the name Lucifer. Where does this name Lucifer come from? Well, it's a reference from Isaiah 14, 12 to 15. And in the English Standard Version, this is the translation. 
How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. So that's kind of the modern uh, translation used in the English Standard Version. And you'll hear now, we'll listen to it in the King James Version. And right at the beginning, when it talks about someone being thrown down, fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, it uses a different word. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. So you can see there's a couple of differences in translation there. Instead of hell, uh, which is the King James Version, we get Sheol in the English Standard Version. And instead of Lucifer, we get Daystar, Son of Dawn. So this is where Lucifer, the name Lucifer, comes from. But the context here is really important to understand because this is actually the taunting that the remnant of the people of Israel can give to Babylon, their captors. So while this has been and can be interpreted as speaking about Satan and using his original or angelic name, Lucifer, perhaps, It can also be interpreted as simply rejecting and taunting the Babylonians, and particularly the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, who, as is recorded in Daniel chapter 4, was turned into a wild beast after standing atop his palace proclaiming his glory. So you can see that the name Lucifer might not be Satan's angelic nomenclature, but perhaps just a poetic nickname for Nebuchadnezzar, someone who was high above all, but who decided to stand on the top of the palace and proclaim that they were better even than God. The truth is, there are a lot of really interesting little rabbit holes that you can go down with this stuff, and heaps of stuff has been written about it. And it is super interesting, but it's not the topic of conversation today, so I can't get tempted to talk about Nephilim and Gregory of the Book of Enoch or any of that other mythology. What we do need to say, though, is that there is plenty of evidence that equating demons with fallen angels didn't necessarily occur really until the 2nd or 3rd century AD. So if the Bible is kind of light on in details about Satan and the character of Satan, where do we get so many ideas that populate the modern imagination about angels, demons, Satan, and the heavenly war? Well, perhaps unsurprisingly throughout history, a lot of the mythology surrounding this comes from literature. And two of the most dramatic and compelling visions of Satan are in two of the most powerful and beautiful epic poems ever written. The first is The Divine Comedy, written by Dante Alighieri in the early 14th century, and the second is Paradise Lost, written by John Milton about 400 years later. Today we're going to focus on Milton's Satan. Dante's version is far less dynamic, but by no means less powerful in its illustration. But because the character is himself less dynamic, he illustrates a distinct element about the satanic impulse that we'll cover 
when we talk about the medieval sin of Acedia in a few episodes' time. But for now, we're going to focus in on Milton's characterization. In 1790, William Blake famously wrote that the reason Milton wrote in fetters when he wrote of angels and God, and at liberty when he wrote of devils and hell, is because he was a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it. Ever since the poem was originally published, a debate has raged about why Satan can often come across so likable, or at the very least, he's heroic and courageous. And it would be foolish, I think, to completely ignore these claims simply out of some kind of weird conviction that just because his character is the character of Satan, I must make sure I am not attracted or even interested in his character. I find it difficult to believe that anyone would read Paradise Lost and not find at least something to like or admire in the character of Satan. If nothing else, he's determined. If nothing else, he is courageous. If nothing else, he is absolutely eloquent, persuasive, and even charismatic. And let's remember, and we've got to remember this, it's a story. So we should not be worried about equating the literary character of Satan with any kind of real understanding of such being, if, if you believe that. Regardless of what Milton's intentions were, something which we will, of course, never know for sure, the fact that so much of the action in Paradise Lost focuses on Satan means that for us today, this poem has the potential to provide insightful imagery of the nature of the satanic impulse, the desire to be God, what this series is all about. So, to the poem. Our first introduction to Satan is in the very beginning of the poem. After invoking the heavenly muses and thus joining in the great tradition of epic poems from Homer and Virgil before him, Milton explains that his purpose, the purpose of this poem that he's writing, is to justify the works of God to man. From here, he launches into the action, not from the beginning of what you might call the plot proper, and by that I mean he doesn't start from the beginning of the heavenly war, but rather he starts the plot right in the middle of the action. The story starts after the war, with Satan having already lost and being hurled headlong flaming from the ethereal sky. And later on, we're going to hear more about all the events that happened beforehand when we hear reflections on the war. But it's interesting that within the first hundred lines, we are in the mind of Satan, understanding what Satan is thinking, what Satan is going through. He awakens in the fiery lake, and looking around, he sees Beelzebub next to him, his second in command. And he says to Beelzebub, What though the field be lost? All is not lost. The unconquerable will and study of revenge, immortal hate, and courage never to submit or yield. And what is else not to be overcome? That glory never shall his wrath or might extort from me. So straight away you can see we have Satan saying that even though the field of war has been lost, something has not been lost, and that is my will, my un conquerable will, my immortal hate, and my courage never to yield. Then they manage to escape and fly from the fiery lake and land at the shore, surveying their surroundings. And here we are presented with one of the most iconic and insightful passages in all of Paradise Lost, I would argue in all of Western literature. Throughout the poem, Milton gives us insights into the mind of Satan, and these should never be ignored. 
but this one, this first one of them all, sets the scene in a way that we should not forget. It gives us an insight into all of the actions that take place hereafter, and should shape our understanding of this seemingly heroic character. Satan looks around. He considers his options, considers all that has happened, the war in heaven, his lost place as an archangel, and this new hellish abode, and he reflects with the following lines. Farewell happy fields where joy forever dwells. Hail horrors, hail infernal world, and thou profoundest hell, receive thy new possessor, one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. What matter where, if I be still the same? And what should I be, all but less than he whom thunder hath made greater? Here at least we shall be free. The Almighty hath not built here for his envy, will not drive us hence. Here we may reign secure, and in my choice, to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Oh, I love that section. It's so good. Because this is the clearest and most precise formulation of the satanic impulse. Remember, the old lie is that we shall become gods, the desire to be God. But we can't. And Satan, here in hell, knows it. He knows it. He knows that he cannot win. He knows that he cannot conquer. He knows that he will not be able to be God. And yet, he does not give in. He makes it clear. To reign in hell is worth it. Because, as he says, it's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. This is one of the most famous passages in the poem, and certainly one of the passages that Blake and others would have seized upon to reinforce their romantic ideals of Satan's heroic usurpation. However, we cannot ignore all the entire picture of what Milton tells us. Because throughout this whole poem, we're continually reminded of the torment, the emptiness, and the despair that Satan experiences. When he is talking about his, when he has his first monologue, right at the start, he spoke this first monologue, Milton tells us, though in pain, vaunting aloud, but racked with deep despair. He is tormented by thoughts both of lost happiness and lasting pain. And in surveying the fiery lake, when he looks up out of the fiery lake at first and has a look around him, he discovers sights of woe, regions of sorrow, doleful shades where peace and rest can never dwell and hope never comes. This is the reality. When he says better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, we have to remember it's hell. <laughs> it's literally hellish. It's not a comfortable place. It's not a happy place. It's not a place that he would want to be for any other reason other than the fact that here at least he shall be free, although that's a very interesting definition of the word free. Consider the first lines of that famous passage that I read before. He starts the whole thing off by saying, Farewell happy fields where joy forever dwells. You see, Satan is fully aware that he has lost joy. He is fully aware that he will never again experience happiness. But he does not care as long as he is in control. It's not that he hates joy. 
It's that it isn't on his terms. His desire is to set the terms. His desire is to be God. And he will suffer torment and despair just for the illusion. And he is even aware that it is indeed an illusion. He will suffer torment and despair just for the illusion of being in control. What he cannot do, what he refuses to allow himself to do, is to bend the knee and acknowledge that he is not God. We can focus here upon some of the language that he uses. He calls himself Hell's new possessor and defines himself as one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. The reason for focusing upon this mind here is because he believes in the capacity of the mind. He says, The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. Now, I have to bookmark this incredible line for another episode because this, along with lines like there is nothing either good or bad but thinking makes it so from Shakespeare's Hamlet, are insights that we will return to in a later episode when we discuss subjectivism, the mind-body dualism question, and the work of René Descartes, famous for, I'm sure you would have heard it before, I think, therefore, I am. But we can still debate or at least question this idea that the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. That's what Satan wants to believe. And maybe it is even what he does believe. But throughout the book, throughout the poem, we're reminded that it's not working. His mind is not doing its job well enough to actually make hell a heavenly place for him because he is in constant pain, torment, and despair. Satan is not happy. He welcomes horrors. He hails this infernal world of hell. But it is his. And he would prefer to live in torment, pain, and despair, having rejected his true essence and become a warped and twisted version of his former glory. He's willing. He's more than willing. He's actually insistent upon accepting all of these things as long as he doesn't have to bow down, as long as he doesn't have to serve God. And he believes that here at least he shall be free. Free. This. Being stuck in hell, tormented and despairing, is freedom? All of this, being stuck in hell, tormented and despairing, is worth it in order to be free? What is this definition of freedom? Satan obviously has a definition in his mind, and that definition is simply that he has rejected the natural hierarchy. He has rejected serving God, and therefore he is, at least in his mind, free. But this is a natural hierarchy, and therefore it's inescapable. It's immutable, and regardless of whether he likes the hierarchy, it exists. This is clear in the fact that far from escaping that hierarchy, in his rejection of it, he actually ends up asserting it. His place is now literally lower. His form is lower, debased and twisted. In seeking to escape from reality, he has instead fallen victim to it. So for now, we've recognized a vital element of the satanic impulse. This is the old lie. And before he tempted Eve with it in the garden, Satan fell for it himself. He knew the power of it. He knew of its appeal because he himself felt it. 
What the serpent said to Eve was the lie that he had told himself and believed. We'll leave Satan here, believing his own lies, and we'll return to him in the next episode. What we've seen so far is that in the character of Satan, we can start to see some of the dynamics of this old lie, the desire to be God. It stems from pride, from an uncontrollable desire to be free at all costs, and we will gladly suffer pain and despair if it only means that we can fool ourselves into thinking that we are in control. So next time in Thou Shalt Be Gods, We'll join Satan as he embarks on his journey to Earth with a mission of corrupting humanity and meet the two figures blocking his way as he tries to leave hell. Satan, in an incestuous standoff with death and sin at the gates of hell, is next time on Chiron, conversations about the past to help us make sense of the present. <laughs>